0: Hey weirdos, so excited for what we are about to do, which is a conversation with Anna Merlin, who's a senior reporter at GO Media, formerly Gizmodo Media Group. Um, She's previously worked as a staff writer at the Village Voice and the Dallas Observer. Her work has also appeared in Rolling Stone, BBC Travel, Topic, The Nib, and on the op-ed pages of the New York Times. This is big time, Anna. And The Globe and Mail. She's been accused of being both a lizard person and a CIA agent, but never at the same time and is the (laughs) author of the newly released Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise To power, Anna Merlin, welcome to Weird Religion. We're so happy that you're here talking with us.
1: Thank you for having
2: me. Anna, we were really excited uh, to read Republic of Lies in part because both Brian and I are just fascinated by American conspiracy theorists, both mm. as a biblical scholar, Brian, and as an American religious historian, me. Um, and we, um, you, you begin the book in a really fun way, which is that you went on, um, to share the story that you went on a cruise ship with conspiracy theorists. <laughs> um, which- yeah. That is
0: wild. That is so wild. Tell us about that.
1: So in January 2016, I went on this cruise for conspiracy theorists. And people are always like, was it 2,000 people who are all conspiracy theorists? Which is no, it was about 100 of us on Mm. a much larger boat. So Mm. it's like there's a conspiracy contingent of a much bigger sort of mainstream cruise going to Mexico and back. Mm. Um, But the conspiracy contingent was very... Identifiable. It was very obvious which ones we were, um, and you know I why noticed why was it, why on was the it cruise, obvious though?
0: Why was it obvious? What do you mean?
1: Um, folks there had a more sort of intense vibe than the people who were there on a normal vacation I see like, is the yeah. way I would put it like we Alex also, Jones
0: Alex Jones for example a little more intense than the average person on the on, yeah I
1: mean he wasn't he wasn't there but oh, he yeah, was on the cruise know, but just, you mentioned uh, talking
0: to him he's like my idea of a conspiracy theorist like super intense yeah. like red face like it, so it was obvious on the cruise
1: yes it was um, Also, we were just, we looked like we spent more time inside and I (laughs) include myself in that. It just, it was, you know, just a different group of people uh, there for a different reason. But so I've talked about this a lot, but I noticed, you know, this was a time when the presidential elections were kind of just getting underway and people on the cruise were really excited about Donald Mm -hmm. Trump, even Mm -hmm. people who had previously been sort of more leaning towards Bernie Sanders or more left-leaning were really, really excited about Donald Trump and really thought that he was, you know, probably not going to get elected because the deep state or, you know, the new world order was going to prevent it. But if he was, he would blow open all these, you know, secret schemes and dirty secrets. And they really felt like he was um, the answer to some of their prayers, Uh. quite literally. And so um, I wondered what was going to happen when he lost Mm. and (laughs) where... (laughs) Yeah, where all that energy was going to go and where all the people like, you know, white nationalists who were really excited about his candidacy, where they were going to channel that. And so when he did not lose, um, instead I started thinking about, you know, what it was that I didn't understand about America that I needed to consider more deeply. And the the answer to that really is uh, found in the writing of this book. So, yeah.
2: Now, one of the things that um, I thought was really Excellent. I mean, historians um, are notorious for being really detail oriented, and so you really mm-hmm. um, spared no detail. Like, what was the most surprising thing that you found when you were delving into the history of conspiracy theories in American uh, society?
1: I mean, I think the thing that sort of comes up for me over and over again is the fact that we have always been a society that has periodic sort of grips of conspiracy theorism that really take over American society and uh, mm. that we get really concerned about them. You know, that there's always this big sort of burst of conspiratorial activity followed by this intense kind of fretting about what it means and whether, you know, we are losing our grip on reason as a country, but also that we almost immediately want to forget about it and dismiss it and say that it's not really part of our, our nature, or our character, and that something like aberrant or out of the ordinary is going on, even though these bursts of conspiracism kind of come up over and over. And also this desire to kind of distance ourselves from it and say that, you know, everyone else is a conspiracy theorist, but we're not when in (laughs) fact, you know, statistically most Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory. So this sort of idea that conspiracy theories are both part of us and something that we constantly want to deny. It was really interesting for me to consider.
0: Do you have a favorite conspiracy theory? Just something you can kind of revel in and laugh at.
1: I mean, I, you know, favorite in terms of like one that I believe is about aliens and alien visitation. Yes. you know, I, I believe in that. Um, I'm so happy. But you to know, like, that. yeah, a conspiracy theory <laughs> that I just think is funny is obviously the one that uh, posits that Alex Jones is Bill Hicks, the you know deceased <laughs> Texas comedian. And it's funny because it bothers Alex Jones. Like it's one of the few things that really like makes him mad because Bill Hicks was sort of anti-establishment and was very, you know, left leaning. And so it makes Alex Jones very angry, which is why it's funny to bring it up.
0: Where do you think where do you think conspiracies cross a line? I assume you think they can cross this line between being funny like that and being Mm -hmm. dangerous or hurtful to people.
1: I mean, I think that they, I think most conspiracy theories and conspiratorial beliefs exist on a spectrum. I think a lot about the anti-vaccine movement, which Mm -hmm. can go from being, you know, a deeply held personal belief that is also a conspiracy theory to being something that, you know, impacts public health. Mm -hmm. So anti-vaccine beliefs are one place where they have the potential to cross the line and make make people sick. Um, The other sort of A trend in conspiracy thinking that I see that is worrisome is the place, and this is a little bit harder to define, but there is a place where you go from implicating your political or social opponents in a conspiracy theory to saying that Anything is justified to prevent them from doing whatever you're accusing them of doing. Mm -hmm. So it's what Chip Burlett calls a rhetorical, who's a researcher, calls a rhetorical incitement to violence, Mm -hmm. a scripted incitement to violence. So I see it a lot with um, the accusation that someone or a group of people are pedophiles. And Mm -hmm. if you say that somebody is a pedophile or is hurting children or is part of a sex trafficking ring, which was the basis of Pizzagate, then nothing is not justified. You know what I mean? Mm. Because hurting children is the worst thing in the world. So anything is justified to prevent that or put a stop to it. And that concerns me because it seems like such a clear justification for violence.
2: Right. Wow. Now, when when you, when you look ahead to 2020 and um, you, you write a, you give the, the readers a lot to consider about how these particular conspiracy theorists have fueled um, the Trump campaign in the past. Do you see any overarching arcs with um, in, in terms of storytelling, like how these these folks are imagining mm. themselves and their place in the 2020 campaign?
1: Right. Um, I think it really depends on which conspiracy community you're talking about because Mm -hmm. they are so diverse, but I think, um, you know, one thing that's been happening a lot with pro Trump conspiracy theorists, specifically, like the QAnon folks is this idea that there is at some point going to be this massive revelation of his, of his secret plan, right. Mm -hmm. You know, that at some point all of his political opponents are going to be arrested and jailed and, you know, charged with uh, crimes against the state, and that when that happens, um, you know, his his secret sort of competence and success will be revealed to the nation. And so I think that um, if that doesn't happen before 2020, as it won't, uh, then they're going to have to come up with like a new... Uh, Something new that is going to have to take place after election day, right? They're going to have to come up with a new thing, a new promise that will only be fulfilled after he's reelected because otherwise they won't have a drive or a motivation to see him get reelected, right? Right. And at the same time, all the people on the left who have been saying that Donald Trump is a Manchurian candidate, you know, who is a paid employee of Vladimir Putin um, and is going to be, you know, dragged out of office and put in jail, When that inevitably doesn't happen before election day, I'm curious about how they're going to sort of maintain their motivation, Mm -hmm. you know, which has always been an interesting question for me and I'm not quite sure of the answer.
0: Yeah. So, so QAnon, for example, I find to be such a fascinating phenomenon because yeah. so two things one could you give us like a little a little state of the question on qAnon today like i know it was kind of a big thing months ago or maybe like last fall really but like where is qAnon right. now and then also i'm just perplexed by the psychology of qAnon because to me just in looking at it it just seems so transparently to be a joke but yet right. people well, were, like how did that how did people how did people get on board with something that was so obviously someone toying with them i thought i thought at least looking at it i don't know if that makes yeah. sense
1: yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I think about the origins of QAnon, but I think people got on board again because they needed a narrative that posed Donald Trump as the victim of these um, you know, dark ma- machinations against him, but also they needed to say that there was a secret plan in place and all they needed to do was wait mm-hmm. and be sort of faithful mm-hmm. in a way and that then everything would be revealed to them. So I would I would say that both the QAnon folks and the sort of remnants of Pizzagate right now are really excited about Jeffrey Epstein being arrested because Mm -hmm. central to both of those. Yeah. So central to both of those um, conspiracy theories is this idea that high level government operatives, particularly Democrats are part of a secret sex trafficking ring. And so they're very excited about the idea that Epstein's arrest is going to reveal this supposed secret sex trafficking ring. So um, it's like infuse them with a bunch of energy in the last like day. That is fascinating to me
2: because um, this intersection of this religious fervor that you talk about and also, and sex. I mean, there seems to be nothing more American than coming up with like far-fetched stories that include both of those things. Um, Right, totally. you, You use a lot of, I've noticed that you use a lot of, language that we typically associate with religious communities, faithfulness, mm-hmm. fervor. Um you talked about remnant. Mm-hmm. Um did you see did you find that there was a um a particular style of being religious that seemed to accommodate both I mean, I appreciate you you've mentioned conspiracy theorists on both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. Does did there seem to be a style of of being religious that seemed to to be well suited? Um, to this kind of conspiratorial thinking?
1: I mean, I definitely feel like I see what I would broadly classify as evangelical Christianity that is featured really strongly in both QAnon and the anti-vax worlds Mm -hmm. and in the Pizzagate worlds, this sort of um, style of like charismatic Christianity that I have trouble sort of accurately placing because I'm not a religious scholar, but it's definitely... Um, A type of Christianity that works very strongly in ideas of portents, signs, miracles, you know, um, the sort of sense that, like, fate is working and that fate is working through us. You know, I hear a lot of that, especially among, like, um, two of the biggest anti-vaccine folks. I just heard them speak at a conference and they were talking a lot about feeling like it was, you know, fated that they would come together to make this film, You know, and that they were that they were doing something for humanity by coming together. So it's it's much more Christian. A lot of conspiracy communities are much more broadly Christian than I think people realize.
2: One thing that I thought was really interesting about the anti-vax stuff that you write about Mm -hmm. here. Well, we live in Oregon, which is one of the in the Portland area, which is one of the um, kind of the hubs of the anti-vax epicenter movement. Yeah. In fact, we just had a, a measles. A scare, And my my son, I, I have a, a baby, and so that was, like, personally, like, all of a sudden we were writing about conspiracy, conspiracy theories, and then, oh, my gosh, like, I'm actually worried about measles. Um, right. It, one of the things that I appreciate about you using the language evangelical um, is that, like, there's this one— um, historian of the movement that talks about how conversionism like this idea that you're converting from one thing to another is kind of Mm. as a hallmark of evangelicalism Um, and that actually I think I'd love to hear you reflect on how people convert um, into Mm. conspiracy theories Uh, because, you know, like the anti-vax movement, at least in in Oregon, has a lot of people who say, I'm not religious at all, right? But they're displaying a kind of fervor that I think you helpfully classify Mm -hmm. as a kind Mm -hmm. of evangelicalism. Can you talk about conversion and how that plays a role?
1: Right, there's a lot of different versions of that. You know, people in the alt-right refer to to it as red-pilling, the idea that you have some kind of um, formative event that opens your eyes and mm-hmm. converts you. Um, so I would say that, broadly, I've talked to a lot of anti-government conspiracy theorists, and most of them have a story of what they perceive as government overreach impacting their personal lives that sets them down this different path. Um, there's one person I talked to, his name is Michael Badnerick, who is a former libertarian presidential candidate. He's a sovereign citizen. Uh, And he talks about literally being um, charged way too much income tax in his 20s (laughs) and sort of not realizing how much income tax he was going to be charged. And it created this entirely new life for him. You know, he hasn't paid any kind of taxes in like 30 years. He tries to only deal in silver and gold. You know, he constantly carries an unlicensed firearm. He won't get a driver's license. And this is all sort of like the direct result of what he saw as, a you know, just a negative impact on him personally because of the tax system, you know. And so with anti-vax people, it's much more direct where a lot of them will say that their children suffered a negative health consequence as a result of being vaccinated. And that opened their eyes and that changed their minds. Like, But there is usually, almost always, for a lot of these people, a really dramatic, like, formative event.
0: Mm. Yeah. I, w- when I started thinking and tried to start thinking in a more organized way about conspiracy theories I had wanted to sort of I don't know if this is the right word but kind of redeem them or or see them in a certain way which would suggest that maybe maybe they're a way of like re-enchanting the world a secular world hmm. that's devoid of the miraculous the spectacular and this is w- this, sure. this is just like the populace fighting back and saying no the world is actually a more magical place I read in your book hmm. I mean at one point you had kind of said really fundamentally what are conspiracy theories about they're about they're about blame and suddenly when i read that word blame i thought that almost that seems that suddenly seemed to me to be a more compelling explanation even thinking Mm. about the anti-vax thing about like you know Mm -hmm. where do all these mental illnesses come from blame boom it's vaccines and so i don't know could you talk about that do you think that explanation has any legs that conspiracy theories enchant the world for people in ways that we almost desire or, or something like that
1: Yeah, I mean, especially if you're talking about, so if you're talking about like the UFO community, for Mm -hmm. instance, that is a very direct example of saying, you know, that there is something outside of our immediate field of vision Mm -hmm. as human beings. And we're trying to find it, we're looking for it, and it does make the world feel and the universe feel bigger Mm -hmm. and more mysterious and more exciting. I would say that things like Bigfoot. Do the same thing, you know, it is, uh, or the Loch Ness monster, what we think of as sort of softer or more benign conspiracy theories. Um, there's also a version of that with people who are really concerned with, uh, let's say Bohemian Grove, right? The idea, which is true, that a group of world leaders gather in sort of semi-secret every year to participate in what some people believe are these weird occult rituals. They're not weird occult rituals, they're just sort of strange, like, play-acting, kind of childish performances of occult rituals, but they do happen, right? But so the idea that that happens creates um, this, this possibility that there is like literally a secret group of people meeting in a mysterious place to do mysterious things. And in some ways that idea is really exciting for people. It's frightening, but it's also exciting because it means that there is, as you say, this sort of like dark mysterious forces at work in the universe. Um, And it's the same reason why we're so interested, even in things like secret societies Mm -hmm. at universities, why Mm -hmm. conspiracy theories about the Masons have lasted for so long is we like the idea fundamentally that these, rituals being held in secret somewhere else affect the world. I think that idea is really interesting for a lot of people. I wonder
2: if if it—and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Does it—is mm-hmm. there something where it's like I could possibly participate in that too? I mean, I see this idea mm-hmm. of like the the wonder and then like, you know, a, a kid who reads Harry Potter thinking like, it could happen to me. <laughs> um, do you see right. people, you know, there, there being some sort of, I don't know, some— some quality that makes them special for even knowing and then possibly being able to participate, playing a role?
1: Right. It's not that they want to participate in the rituals themselves. It's that they want to participate in opposing them. Mm. And so knowing about them means that they can directly participate in opposing systems of evil or of a negative power structure, right? Because they've, they've found it. They've identified it. And so what conspiracy theories do for a lot of people is they allow them to feel like they are participating in a way that they weren't before. And they're speaking directly to the systems of power that affect their lives in a negative way. And so I think that that is really meaningful for a lot of people because it allows them to feel like they are no longer on the sidelines of these unjust systems, that they are really getting to directly sort of talk back to them in a way that, especially for people in the United States, where our power structures can be at the same time so visible, but also so hard to impact, I think is very exciting. Mm
2: -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you think um, the role that social media has—you y- write a lot about um, yes. how conspiracy theorists use and are used by um, social media platforms. Can you right. talk about, I, a, a, a little bit more about how you think um, those platforms have made, um, you know, the in this kind of fake news world that we live in, um, right. have—, have provided hospitality for this way of Mm -hmm. of thinking and being?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really social media more than the internet, Mm -hmm. you know, because the internet has been around for a long time and social media, you know, which is a more recent sort of more sophisticated invention has allowed a lot of conspiracy communities to find each other and fuse together. And Mm -hmm. I always say has given them a longer half-life. You know, one really good example is like, um, I watched a Pizzagate message board turn into Uh, for a while, become completely engulfed engulfed with conspiracy theorizing about Seth Rich, who Mm is the DNC staffer who was murdered and who, you know, right-wing conspiracy theorists have decided was murdered because he was about to spill what he knows about Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. So on the surface, Pizzagate and Seth Rich have nothing to do with one another, right? But social media allowed this group of people to sort of get together in one place and to sort of swap their ideas back and forth in a way that allowed this conspiracy community to find a new direction rather than just sort of fizzling out in a way that it might have before. So it does a lot of that. It also allows all of us to see conspiratorial ideas that we wouldn't before because of Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. Um, We're much more aware of What people are talking about in the conspiracy realm than we would be, you know, 20 years ago, if you had to go to the right conference or, you know, get handed the right flyer on the street, it's much more visible, which is why we know about, for instance, QAnon, Mm. you know, because it's completely a creation of social media and then also was given a boost because it was so... Um, so much a product of Twitter and there were so many journalists on Twitter that then journalists wrote all these explainers of QAnon which allowed QAnon to continue and spread. So in a lot of ways, it both makes conspiracy theories visible to us and it allows us to, all of us as a group, to continue promoting those conspiracy theories to one extent or another.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating (laughs) point. I don't want to put you on the spot to come up with some kind Mm -hmm. of prescriptive idea in this sense, but I want to ask you, I mean, you did such great work in the book being sympathetic mm-hmm. in a kind of journalistic sense. And you're talking about everything mm-hmm. in this really objective kind of winning way. And even with personal touches at points, I just thought it was such a well-written book. Thank so you. I don't want to, yeah, no, it was fantastic. Um, and I recommend Thanks. it to everybody Thanks. to read it. Cause it's really good. Um, I wondered, so as a professor, I, mm. as professors we deal with conspiracy stuff with our students too especially in the religious studies classroom oh, yeah. like, like two things that have come I up re- recently for me have been the flat earth thing oh, has yes. come up I don't That's even big. I don't even want to say how it's come up and why it's come up because I don't want to like implicate people in my community but let's just say <laughs> right. that it's come right. up and it's like you're kind of sitting there like just staring saucer-eyed at these people and then the other thing that came up recently mm. is more not a specific conspiracy but like this idea that a student would you know here's something that we would say as professionals in our field and just say mm-hmm. yeah but I saw it documentary and it, right. it just mm-hmm. said this. And it's like, and you're kind of just sitting there like, no.
2: You don't I'm, even know what I, we have. We've been at a
1: loss. <laughs> yeah. It just, And so right. I guess my
0: question is is, is, is just a plea for help from an expert on conspiracy <laughs> theories, which is like, is there any way to sort of get through to people? Is it a lost cause? Mm. Is it this kind of thing where I guess there's been a lot of social science research about the more you try to convince people that their view is wrong, yeah. they're going to become more deeply entrenched. Do you just kind of smile yeah. at people? Like what's... Help us. Any hope. Any hope will be. Totally <laughs> Help us, Anna Merlin. You're yeah. our only hope. Yeah.
1: So I, I heard that recently also from a friend of mine who's a professor was just saying, you know, that conspiracy theories were coming up, up a lot in her class. The idea of the Illuminati, the mm-hmm. idea of sort of a global new world order, um, from people like from students that she saw as relatively sophisticated because mm-hmm. It was their way of expressing skepticism about global power structures, but they were being fed through these completely kind of ridiculous ideas about the Illuminati. Um, so, yeah, what we know about talking people out of conspiracy theories is that, number one, uh, it is very hard to do unless you are viewed by that person as being sort of part of their social milieu. Mm-hmm. They have to see you as being sort of like them, politically, mm-hmm. socially, Otherwise, you're seen as an outsider and your words don't hold as much sway. We also know that um, conspiracy theories are easier to sort of dislodge from someone's mind if they're a more recent convert. The sort of more entrenched you are in a conspiracy theory, excuse me, the harder it is to talk somebody out of it because Mm -hmm. they really do resemble religious faith. Um, So without being super pessimistic, I would say that a lot of people I talk to who have been in conspiratorial worlds for a really long time Mm -hmm. do not really show any signs of coming out of it. However, I also talk to a lot of people who say, you know, I was a big 9-11 conspiracy theorist when I was in college. It was a phase. Mm -hmm. I grew out of it. So what I would say is that specifically for younger people, it is part of a phase of intellectual inquiry and trying to decide what you view as a reliable source of information, Mm -hmm. who you view as um, reliable experts in a field. And that process, which is so common for most of us, especially in our late teens and early twenties has mm-hmm. gotten really complicated because social media and the internet flatten sources of information. So people can watch a documentary on Netflix or YouTube and say, well, this seems just as credible a source of information to me as anything else. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so it is part of the increasing democratizing of information, but it also means that like young people, especially are. And, you know, elders, QAnon is mostly elders, uh, are exposed to just more and more bad sources of information. So, I mean, the main thing that I tend to say to people is that you don't have to rely on one source of information. And that if you watch one documentary that makes a claim, you should really try to figure out if that claim is being replicated other places Mm. and uh, how that person might benefit from making that claim. So I try to kind of turn some people's suspicion back on the source of information that they found so persuasive and say, well, you know, why do you think that person is telling you that? Why do you think someone is telling you the earth is flat? How do they benefit mm. from telling you that? You know, how many other sources of, in, of information say that? If you're really doing your research and your that fact is sound, you will find it echoed in other places. But then, you know, they'll go and find it on another conspiracy <laughs> website. <Right? laughs> so, I mean... I think the short answer is that it is really, really, really hard to talk people who are predisposed to conspiracy thinking out of it, Yeah, you know, and the best we can do is expose people to more and better sources of information and more and better types of speech and hope that the that the better ideas take hold.
0: Yeah, that's good advice. That makes sense. Well,
2: I I can't think of a better way to wrap up our talk than a plea for consensus, for peer review, and for (laughs) maturity. So I think that's what we all hope for all of our lives. Anna Merlin, thank you so much for talking with us about Republic of Lies. We really enjoyed reading your book. Thanks for taking the time.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Anna, it's such a fantastic book. I recommend this book. It's so easy to read, but so detailed. <laughs> it's What a great combination. Congratulations. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you.
1: Great to talk. Bye-bye. Bye. See Thanks. ya. Thanks.